I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Hello, this is Scott Miller, welcoming you to this podcast of The Trade Guys. Our partner, Andrew Schwartz, is on a brief hiatus, but he'll be back with us in studio later this summer. Today, Bill and I welcome our CSIS colleague, Heather Conley, to talk about the recent EU-US summit. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode of The Trade Guys. Today's podcast is about all things Europe, and we welcome back a friend and colleague and former guest, Heather Conley. Heather is the director of Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program, has been since 2009, and is a senior vice president at CSIS, and one of our favorite guests. So welcome back, Heather, and tell us everything we need to know about what happened this week. Well, Scott, it's great to be uh, with the trade guys, as always. Thank you for the Europe edition here. Our head has been spinning. The last week and a half has been a Super Bowl for our program. We started in Cornwall with the G7 and the US-UK bilateral, ran through Brussels, NATO, EU, and we just finished the Geneva summit between President Putin and President Biden. So it's been a week. But let's turn back because I think in some ways the US-EU summit sort of got a little overwhelmed uh, because everyone was really turning their eyes to the US-Russia summit. But there was some really important news that came out of of this summit. And certainly that was the extension of a five-year truce uh, on the Airbus uh, Boeing subsidy issue, something that has bedeviled the U.S.-EU relationship for 17 years. I'm going to tell you, I was a little disappointed that the problem wasn't solved, that it was sort of truce. We seem to be becoming much more comfortable, not with problem solving, but with truce making. Uh, I'm glad that these five years will be focused on having a conversation to address Chinese large aircraft. And this is really the point of really what President Biden was doing in his many stops for Europe is that we're not, we can't fight each other. We've got to work together and be united to meet challenges like China. So I have to say that was both the good news and people were working late at night to see if even that truce would come out, but it wasn't solving the problem. And why did we have a problem that lasted for 17 years without resolution? I think those are the issues we have to, to really get at. Why can't we solve problems? Why do we kick the can down the road? And of course, the next can that we're kicking is Section 232, the steel and aluminum tariffs. The parties seem to be having a a deadline to at least the end of the year to get that resolved, remove those tariffs. You know, if we can only get a truce for five years on the aircraft subsidies, I'm a little worried about the steel and aluminum uh, tariffs, to be honest with you, because there is a real constituency here in the U.S. for perhaps maintaining those. So I think that's a, a big question mark dealing with those issues. But that's sort of old technology. We've got a bigger problem on new technology and the announcement of the trade and Technology Council, the US-EU, and there's a plethora of other dialogues and councils. My goodness, a dialogue and council for all seasons. Uh, There are many of them. The Trade and uh, the Technology Council is the biggest one, but they've also put forward a joint technology competition policy dialogue, a transatlantic green technology alliance. I mean, there's a lot on, on tech here. 
if we don't get the tech relationship right, we don't get the transatlantic economic relation right. Uh, I just, I fear that putting this in a council with a whole lot of big names, Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, Commerce Secretary, uh, the, the trade, U.S. Trade Representative, that's a lot of firepower, but there's a lot of work to be done on that. So we can unpack that a little bit. But uh, as I said, I'm, I'm delighted it was a positive summit, but man, do we have work to do. Well, first, let me uh, welcome Heather. It's always a pleasure to have you. And we noticed your empire is growing because in addition to Europe and Russia and I guess Eurasia, also the Arctic. Add the Arctic. Yes, indeed. We're growing. We're growing. Are we throwing Crimea in too or just... uh, Uh, That is part of Ukraine. That is part of Europe. Uh Yes, sir. Okay, good. (laughs) Well, welcome. I'd add a little bit more on the Airbus Boeing thing. It's enormously tempting. I've been trying to find a cicada joke because it's been 17 years and I can't think of anything that's really funny except that, you know, they both have 17 years in common. But (gasps) oh, my gosh, they're on the same cycle. I never even thought about that. Oh, no. (laughs) And uh, both aircraft and cicadas fly. Yes. Or, Or Occasionally, and and they they both make lots of noise. Yes, uh, and in fact, in my neighborhood, it would be a close call as to which is noisier, mm-hmm. you know, a jet taking off or or you know, eight zillion cicadas and all of the trees around here. It's beginning to fade now, uh, and the newspaper says they'll be gone by the Fourth of July. But right, what now? What we've got now is a lot of bodies um, everywhere: uh, sidewalks, streets, yards, pool. Yes, a lot of. Dogs are happily eating them. There are people that eat those things, so be careful. Yeah. (laughs) Add some fiber to your diet, Bill. It's all right. Our dog seems uninterested. (laughs) Anyway, I think Heather's right. The right word for the Boeing Airbus thing is truce. They kick the can. I would say, though, that while both sides came out of it okay, in a way, I think, depending on how it evolves, I think the Europeans came out of it a little bit better. You know, this was always going to be a negotiated outcome. I mean, in a way, this is what the WTO is, is actually designed to do. People occasionally say, well, this is a sign of failure. It's not a sign of failure. When you can negotiate an outcome, it's a sign of success. You know, it's a sign that the WTO is working. And the truth is, big cases always get resolved by negotiations directly between the parties. They don't get resolved by litigation. And there's no better proof of that than the 17-year-old Boeing Airbus case. But for years, the the European position has been after saying we didn't do it and we're innocent, saying we're not going to do it anymore, and end of story. And the U.S. position has been to want to rub the Europeans' nose in it and say, well, you know, not only do you have to admit that you're guilty, but uh, you have to pay the money back. Well, or Airbus has to pay the money back because you've got all these now illegal subsidies for more than 30 years. And you can't just have the fruits of those and say you're sorry and, and say we're not going to do it anymore. You have There has to be some penalty. So that's been the dividing line. And, and what they basically have agreed to is the first part, not the second part. The EU has, and both sides really, but really the EU is saying, well, we're not going to do it anymore. And the advance in the truce is they define what it is a little bit more clearly than has been defined before. Because there's always been a dispute about launch aid, which is what Airbus has been getting. They repay or they don't repay, depending upon how successful the launch is, which makes it a subsidy of variable amount. But apparently what they've done is define very clearly what cannot be done. In other words, what would constitute as a subsidy and what both sides agree not to do. 
So that's a step forward. That's good. But where they punted was on the question of giving the money back, which is the main thing that the Americans wanted. And the test will be, you know, are we going to spend five years talking about that or are we going to gradually forget about that? And if we gradually forget about it, then basically the outcome will be that the Europeans got away with it, which I don't think is probably is is a particularly good outcome for the trading system. And maybe they'll get away with it on the grounds that we need to work together to counter China. When I was in the government, I brought that up. I told Boeing, you know, the Chinese play you guys like a violin. They extract whatever concessions out of, out of you they can. Then they go to Airbus and say, here's what Boeing will give us. What will you do? And, and they get what they can out of Airbus. And they come back to Boeing and say, well, Airbus up the ante. What do you have to offer? And I said, you know, you guys ought to get together and stop that. You know, just don't play the game. You'll both be better off for it. At which point somebody had reminded me that that's a violation of the Sherman Act. And they couldn't do that. But... Right now, apparently, times have changed, and we're talking about doing exactly that. And it's probably what should have happened a long time ago, because the Chinese challenge is going to be enormous. I think there's disagreement over how quickly they're going to have a viable product. My experience has been they invariably produce quicker than anybody predicts. They've got a plane, and what they'll do is classic Chinese strategy. They'll force all their airlines to buy their own planes. And they'll create a market. And, you know, maybe it's not a very good plane, but it'll be a lot better once they've sold, you know, hundreds of them to Chinese airlines and they're all flying. And then eventually they flood the world with them. It's, you know, it's a steel strategy. Because it it is, without question, the largest consumer market for civil aviation. Yes. And they'll use it to create a viable product. And then they'll dump it on the world like they've done with steel, like they've done, like they're about to do with semiconductors and like they've done with aluminum. Well, before we get to the the technology side of this, Bill, what's your expectation on how we do anything more than talk over the next three to five years? So on steel, Tether said, again, a punt, a commitment to work together to solve the problem. I hope they can. It's one of those problems where there is a collective solution. You know, this is an overcapacity problem with with one culprit, really. I mean, you can say there's a few others, but there's one major culprit, which is China, with over half the global capacity is now, for steelmaking, is now in China. And, you know, they've shut down some old inefficient polluting plants and they've built some new ones. You know, it's not getting better. You need a strategy that basically forces them to eat it. The Trump strategy was, let's hit everybody else in the face with tariffs, and they'll respond by hitting the Chinese in the face with tariffs. Well, what happened was we hit everybody else in the face with tariffs, and they retaliated against us. Not a successful strategy on on two levels. It harmed us, uh, but it didn't solve the problem. Now, in the interim, we have virtually knocked them out of the market, the Chinese out of the market via our anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases. But, you know, it continues to sneak in. Because it gets shipped to third countries where it's either fraudulently relabeled or it's transformed from slab into coil or plate or strip or something that is enough of a transformation to give it a new tariff schedule number uh, and make it a product of, of the third country. So you really need a global resolution here. You need a global safeguard. And that's what we've been doing for the last three to five at the OECD Steel Committee. And of course, there China was part of it along with some others that I think didn't want to come to an agreement. I think we have to go one by one. The EU is a good start. They're motivated to solve the problem. And in fact, they've imposed restrictions of their own on China already. They've taken the safeguard action against China. They have quotas on Chinese steel. 
But we need to go to uh, Japan. We need to go to Korea. We need to go to a whole bunch of places and, and get them to do the same thing. That won't be easy, but that's the, the answer. If you want the tariffs to go away on Europe or on any other countries besides China, I think the only way you're going to get Biden to get rid of them is through a global action to which everybody else agrees to impose them on China as well. Because then we can stop retaliating against each other and we can focus all our energy on the real culprit in all this. Bill, don't you also think, though, that potentially powerful climate policies like putting a carbon border adjustment tax, you know, focusing on on steel production can also hit the Chinese. Potentially, the Europeans are uh, really thinking very boldly about their own climate ambitions and reaching carbon neutrality. Don't you think they can also put forward a real challenge to China just on, you know, steel, cement, uh, those types of factors? Of course, that will have huge impact for the U.S. as well. Well, the EU is going to. We're interested to see how it plays out because the border adjustment measures are not designed well, at least ostensibly not designed to restrict production. They're designed to restrict dirty production. And if it works right, what the Chinese will do is develop clean steel mills and reduce their emissions in the process and become, you know, a paragon of international virtue. That's far-fetched, but that's the idea. I mean, the other answer is they could just shut down dirty capacity. But, uh, you know, I, I think if if the measure works, it won't necessarily reduce their exports. It'll reduce their dirty exports. And they've already demonstrated that they've got money and, and willingness to put into industries to support them. So what they may end up doing is actually, they could actually increase their production capacity uh, out of new clean facilities. Two separate problems, and you might not be able to solve them both in one blow. And an awful lot of hope rather than a strategy. So this is going to be worth watching as we go forward. Now, as Heather pointed out, there's a lot of high-powered talent in this technology council, and I'm not sure what, what's in it for us. Heather, do you have a, a sense of what the United States gets out of this and how it works? So I'm not sure how it's going to work. I don't think anyone really knows how it works. And there are an enormous number of topics that interact with one another. But let me, again, emphasize that we have got to get the technology right in order for the transatlantic economy to continue to be strong and to be prosperous. My colleague Jim Lewis and I just put out a, a piece before the summit calling for, you know, creating a digital Atlantic. And, and we put out some pretty bold statements in that piece. We said, look, Europe lost the last decade technologically. They are a regulatory superpower, and that's where we see their strength, and that's where you know, U.S. technology companies feel their strength, but it's not developing a European capacity. Europe cannot afford to lose another decade. How does you know the U.S. strategically invest in Europe to make them stronger so they can be more resilient and provide alternatives to Chinese technology? But the problem is Europe doesn't want that U.S. health and support. It seeks technological sovereignty or strategic autonomy in a variety of ways. But we're just looking at this massive gap that is emerging between U.S. technological development, 
and Europe's and Europe has great building blocks, but it's not being able to grow. How do we invest in this? I personally, I'm not optimistic that a trade and technology council is going to fix any of this. This is about putting something forward as a strategic understanding of Europe and technology. It's fixing immediately the data flow problem that we have because of Schrems 2 and the lawsuit. We don't have a viable data transfer agreement today. It's getting some of those issues sorted as quickly as possible. And as I read the Digital Services Act, as well as the digital single market, this isn't going to go away. Europe is really moving away from a U.S. model. So we propose sort of a grand bargain, if you will. The U.S. has to make some important investments and take steps towards Europe in the privacy uh, space. And Europe has to take a few steps towards the U.S. Or uh, We really are, are, are quite concerned that this is going to be another lost technology decade for Europe, and they can't sustain that to remain competitive economically for the future. So let's prioritize, let's focus, let's not call truces, let's solve problems. And I don't know if it's fit for purpose to solve those really difficult problems. Well, look, if you want to be the regulatory first mover, like Europe appears to, you've got to make sure your regulation is not inhibit innovation. So there was a big loss of commercial innovation with the the advent of the precautionary principle in European regulation. And that was the start of falling behind. It's happened certainly in the tech platform companies uh, now where the prevalent regulation on privacy has inhibited technological growth of firms. All the great uh, European inventors in the tech platform space live in Silicon Valley, as best I can tell, (laughs) and work here. Uh, So Right. Right. Really, Spotify is their, their great technological platform. But, you know, we need Europe to, to grow at scale the types of Amazons and, and, and things like that. Right now, they're regulating everybody else's tech, but that doesn't help Europe's economic competitiveness. And look, even, you know, German automotive sector, uh, they understand they're no longer a 19th century hardware. They're now software. And that data transfer question is vital. They just don't have a societal and an economic response to that. Certainly the European Union's COVID recovery facility, this enormous amount of funds is going both for greening and and for tech, is an important first start, but it has to be used very, very wisely. And it's unclear whether that will be a leapfrog uh, into a greater European tech component. Scott, you're right. I mean, GDPR was really proof of concept for the European Union of the power of the first mover regulatory uh, power. They set the pace globally. Uh, It's in all the, you know, EU free trade agreements. And I think that emboldened them to continue on in that space. I just, I fear uh, that Europe will not be able to grow its own tech companies if it's going to prioritize the primacy of its regulatory power. I just add, uh, I share Heather's pessimism about this. I guess I'd make three points. One is councils like this have a long history with Europe. They start with considerable fanfare and great enthusiasm, uh, and then they tend to fade away. No one sticks the knife in and pronounces them dead. It's more like sand leaking out of the bag. You know, the meetings become less frequent. The ministers send deputies. And once the CEOs see that the ministers are sending deputies, the CEOs, you know, send their aides. And pretty soon you really don't have very much. I hope that won't happen. But it's up to the government, uh, both governments, really, to make sure that it doesn't happen and to make sure that their principal officers continue to show up. There are three American co-chairs. 
Secretary of State Commerce and the U.S. Trade Representative. And if this is going to be viable, uh, they've got to post and they've got to make sure that their EU counterparts do the same thing. So, you know, we'll see. Heather said the magic words, which are strategic autonomy. And I'm gloomy about this. The Europeans really need to decide how they want to position themselves. And I don't think they're united on that. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who are beginning to appreciate the gravity of the Chinese challenge and the, and the similarity of what they face with what we already face. On the other hand, there's a lot of people that I think are tend to view both China and the United States with some skepticism uh, and see themselves as a kind of a third force, potentially, uh, in the global economic superstructure. I think that Heather's right. There's a lot of reasons why that's not really a viable alternative for them right now. They need to do a lot of things to make themselves competitive, particularly in the in the digital space. And um, I think the EU's idea is, well, we'll get there by regulation. And that can, you know, make life miserable for everybody else, uh, which may make them happy. But it doesn't create companies, you know, it, and it doesn't create Google, Facebook, et cetera, competitors. And, uh, you know, they really need to be focusing on, on an innovation policy and focusing on, on some of the things that, like Scott mentioned about the precautionary principle, where they do have an advantage. This is the last point. And Scott alluded to this is, is you know, th- there's a regulatory first mover advantage, but it is amplified in this case because of the absence of a U.S. policy. You know, one of the big things I learned on the Hill over and over and over again is you can't beat something with nothing. And when it comes to GDPR, we got nothing. And the result is that the European regulation, good, bad, flawed, whatever, is becoming the default position. If you want to do business in Europe, you've got to conform to it. Uh, you've got states here, uh, beginning with California, but more recently Virginia, passing their own state privacy laws, and there is no federal law. And you've got, you know, periodic commitments by various uh, members of Congress in both parties and both bodies to say we're going to do this. And year after year, we go by and it doesn't get done. And I think what that means is that until we have a you know, a federal policy, and frankly, one I think that's going to have to preempt state policies, the Europeans are going to be, they're going to become the default regulator. And that will help them in their uh, ability to position themselves. One immediate step may be that these three American cabinet officers start to figure out what the American strategy would be and uh, what, what our regulatory policy might, might look like and begin engaging with the Congress on that. But in the meantime, we've got, we've got, a, lot to, we've got a lot of happy thoughts and and issues that will have to be tracked carefully when the happy thoughts fade. Uh, so, Heather, uh, want to bring up one thing, be, uh, which is the United Kingdom, since the UK is no longer part of Europe. Uh, and note that, uh, <laughs> note with interest, no longer part of the EU. I think it's still part of Europe. It's um, not a part of Europe, and no longer part of the of, of the EU from a trade standpoint. So, uh, thanks to Brexit, we were, at one time we were negotiating a free trade agreement with them. The UK has uh, has announced their intention to join the. CBTPP in Asia. And uh, what's going on there? Uh, Can you tell us anything on on this topic happened this week? Before the G7 summit began in Cornwall, President Biden and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson had their own bilateral. Speaking of technology, out uh, their declaration also set up a a technology council. So uh, with the UK, because the UK is one of the leading technology innovators. And they have really, in their sort of post 
EU Global Britain mantra are really focusing on science, innovation, technology. And there could be some great uh, partnership opportunities for the U.S. and the U.K. uh, to drive some of that uh, innovation, uh, perhaps encourage a stronger uh, response from the European Union. So in this Global Britain, you're absolutely right. They are trying to hoover up some uh, new trade agreements. They announced uh, the U.K.-Australia agreement. CPTPP. That's a part of that strategy. They're working on a trade agreement with with India. Um, And yes, they would very much like uh, a free trade agreement with the U.S. Unfortunately, that has been put uh, on the shelf for quite uh, some time, despite there's an enormous amount of work that has already gone in to building the, the, the building blocks, a lot of working groups uh, under the Trump administration. USTR did a lot of work. So they've got the preparatory work for this free trade agreement. But President Biden was very clear he's not signing a major trade deal. Certainly, uh, he made that very clear well before a new problem that has come up uh, on the US-UK free trade agreement front, and that is the Northern Ireland Protocol. So just to go backwards a a second, when the United Kingdom negotiated with the European Union to withdraw from the European Union, uh, they assigned a a legally binding protocol for Northern Ireland, which would keep Northern Ireland in the European Union single market and customs union. Uh, Again, that making that uh, Northern Ireland now a very distinct and separate um, from the rest of the United Kingdom. That was to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland, between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But this protocol created uh, a border on the the sea, in the Irish Sea. And moving goods, they have to go through some customs and and checks and uh, on those uh, goods. The United Kingdom signed that protocol, but we are now, I think, coming to realize that there really wasn't that much interest in implementing that protocol. And uh, President Biden has been abundantly clear with his British counterpart that um, Ireland and Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Peace Agreement, uh, which the U.S. played a a very important role uh, in in negotiating and uh, mediating, has to be protected. And anything that happens uh, to dislodge that uh, will meet great ire uh, from the Biden White House. So in preparation for this big bilateral meeting before the G7, you know, there was a lot of very tough language coming out of National Security Advisor uh, Jake Sullivan. Um, they were really uh, pushing the UK. They left it outside the meeting. So they did all the tough work outside the press interviews. And they sent the U.S. Charged Affair uh, in London uh, with a very stern demarche about the UK's behavior regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol. But nothing was solved. So we are waiting at the end of this month. The UK may unilaterally continue to suspend physiosanitary checks on chilled meats. This is the so-called sausage wars. If they do that, the EU has already uh, taken the UK, uh, has begun court proceedings, infringement proceedings, because they haven't been implementing the protocol. Uh, I think if we continue to see this deepen the White House is going to have to then think some unthinkable thoughts, which is do they start applying greater pressure 
on the United Kingdom. They've already said they're not going to go forward with the free trade agreement, but that was sort of already given away in some ways before all of the issues on Northern Ireland. Congress has been clear, members of the House, they're not going forward with this. But does this require additional steps should this crisis deepen? The message from the White House is also to Brussels, hey, look, this is no time to, you know, get too specific. We want to make sure we don't see violence return to Northern Ireland. We already are seeing that. We're getting ready to hit marching season, which is always a particularly fraught time in Northern Ireland. And this has kicked up a whole lot of dust and a whole lot of bad politics in, in Northern Ireland. So we'll, we'll encourage the EU to be as flexible as they can. But I have to say, you know, you sign an international agreement, you either abide by it or you decide to withdraw from it. And of course, Prime Minister Johnson actually threatened uh, that he would invoke Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which would be uh, suspending uh, implementation. So this problem, I fear, is getting worse. And the question is, is the U.S. going to penalize the U.K. if things really continue to deteriorate? So let's watch the sausage wars. We'll see at the end of the month what the U.K. decides to do. Well, let me ask a question, since Andrew's not here, uh, for, for the folks in Youngstown. Why in the world would the United States, if we're not going to conclude a free trade agreement with Britain, you know, it's a it's a, it's a chlorinated chicken too far or something. What business is it of ours how the EU and, and the UK resolve this? Why don't we worry about other things? We've always had a, a very strong and traditional uh, role in Northern Ireland, again, uh, dating back to the 1998 Good Friday Peace Agreement, where former Senator uh, George Mitchell negotiated the end of the Troubles. Uh, we obviously have a strong uh, Irish-American contingent here in the United States that feels very strongly that the, the U.S. needs to play a role. But look, we need a strong and vibrant United Kingdom. We need a strong and vibrant, and vibrant European Union. So they buy American goods. They bring uh, American companies uh, and, and, and invest in the United States. They can't do that if they are in a trade war. Uh, and we get caught in the middle of that with U.S. companies that are based in, in Northern Ireland or have equities in, in the United Kingdom as well. So um, why it matters is um, we have deep and important economic issues, and we also have a, a deep and abiding interest in making sure there's continued stability on the island of Ireland. And uh, I think, again, having an Irish-American president right now, Mr. Joe Biden, will reinforce that message. Thanks for the explanation. That at least provides some context that, that I, as a, just an occasional reader of these things, uh, couldn't find in the newspapers. So we do appreciate your that. And we appreciate you coming on the show, Heather. This has been terrific for our listeners. I, I think they'll they'll welcome the, the insight into what went on and versus what might have to go on as weeks unfold. Oh, it's always so great to be with you guys. And, you know, this uh, this story is only going to continue. We'll watch the Trade and Technology Council, see how that does, how we, we really start resolving, I hope, these tech issues. And yes, all eyes on Northern Ireland over the next few weeks. So thank you, guys, as always. So great to be with you. Thanks. See you next time. Always fun. Always a pleasure. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it.
You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.